there are certain things that mark us out. You can tell what team someone's a fan of by the t-shirt or sweatshirt they wear on game day. What college someone went to is marked out by a ring or a coffee mug. A person's political persuasion is marked out by social media posts or bumper stickers or signs in the yard. What marks out someone as spiritual? And when I say spiritual, I mean someone who has the Spirit of God. Someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Is it ecstatic experiences? Like visions or or dreams? Is it overpowering emotions? Like falling to the floor or uncontrollable laughing or crying? Is Is it just a sense of of closeness to God. I I know God. I just know it. What is it that identifies and shows to us and to others, ah, this one belongs to God. This is one in whom His Spirit resides. And this isn't an insignificant or secondary question. Because the promise of the gospel is that everyone who belongs to God has the Spirit. The Spirit is not for some. He's for all. And so what marks us out as truly spiritual having the Spirit? Here's what I want to persuade you of this morning. What marks us out as people of the Spirit is confessing that Jesus is Lord and using our spirit-given gifts for the good of the church. Would you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12? That's on page 959 in the blue Bibles in front of you. If you're new to looking at the Bible, the Bible is divided into two broad sections, the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi and the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. And if you see Matthew, go forward, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You're going to come to 1 Corinthians and chapter 12, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. Now, we are in a section in this book dealing with the gathered church. What do I mean by that? I mean, we're in a section where Paul is addressing how the church should act when we come together for worship. What should we do? What should we not do? That's 11 through 14. 11 started with instruction on women's adornment, and it ended with instruction on the Lord's Supper. Now, 12 through 14 is is all about spiritual gifts. What are they, and how are they used? Look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. 
And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about spiritual gifts now. Verse 1 makes that clear. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. Now, by the way, whenever Paul uses that phrase, now concerning, it's his way of introducing a new topic. Now concerning the matter you, about which you wrote, chapter 7, verse 1. And then he goes on to talk about marriage and singleness. Now concerning food offered to idols, chapter 8, verse 1. And then he goes on to talk about idols. You see, the Corinthians had actually written Paul a letter, a letter that no one has a copy of. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering questions that they'd asked him And one of those questions has to do with spiritual gifts. Hey, Paul, how do these these work? Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. By the way, I don't want you to be uninformed. And so to make sure that we're just all on the same page, let me answer just a couple of fundamental questions before we even look further. You might be sitting there asking, what is a spiritual gift? Good question. A spiritual gift is a gift or gifts, plural, given by the Holy Spirit to believers for the building up of Christ's church. I'm going to say that again. A spiritual gift is a gift or gifts, plural, given by the Holy Spirit to believers for the building up of Christ's church. Why is it spiritual? Because it's given by the Spirit. Why is it a gift? Because it's not something innate to you. It's a gift given to you. And it's for the good of the church. We're going to get into these things more. Well, what did Paul want them to be informed about? Two things immediately. First, the folly of false spirituality. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So so this is the Corinthians before they came to Christ. What were they characterized by? False spirituality. Idol worship. They were were led by, they were influenced by, they they gave themselves to all sorts of things that that they thought had significance and meaning, things they thought connected them to to meaning and reality and truth and significance and purpose. This was all untrue. Idols are mute. Idols don't speak because idols aren't real. Only God speaks because only God is real. The Corinthians were, past tense, given to a false spirituality. By the way, all of you, before you came to Christ, were given to false spirituality. Sometimes when I'm meeting with someone who is a Christian, uh, I say, you know, I, I say something like, well, we were all pagans. And that's true. Because before you came to Christ, you were given to false spirituality. Like the Corinthians, you were led astray by mute idols. Some of you worshipped money. Some worshipped pleasure. Some worshipped excellence in academics. Some popularity. 
some the need for significance. But honestly, no matter what the particular idol, no matter how well-meaning you were, yours was a false spirituality. You were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. What then is the test of true spirituality? Verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The acid test of true spirituality is where you stand in relation to Jesus Christ. If you do not confess Him as Lord, if you think He is something other than the Son of God who came to live and die and rise again and offer forgiveness for all who repent and believe. If you think he's anything other than that, maybe an influential teacher or a historical figure or a narcissist who's obsessed with himself or maybe a man who constrains people to a moral straitjacket. If you think any of these things, yours is a false spirituality. On the other hand, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that He is the Son of God who came to save you from your sins by dying on the cross in your place and rising again, that is the substance of true spirituality. That is the essence, that the, that is the evidence that the Spirit of God dwells in you because no one confesses Jesus as Lord unless God reveals him by the Spirit. Do you guys remember when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter makes the good confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a great confession that is. And then Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The acid test of true spirituality is where you stand in relation to Jesus. Do you confess him as Lord and Savior? Do you believe that he has died for you and risen for you? And are you willing for him to reign over you? Then count yourself of the Spirit. Your confession is a mark of the Spirit of God residing in you. He has given you eyes to see. Praise God. And He has given you something else. He has given you gifts of His grace to bless the church. We are talking about spiritual gifts here, right? And, and Paul's going to get into that now explicitly. But before we actually go on to verse 4, I just want to comment on why does Paul talk about the Corinthians' pagan past and then the lordship of Christ before he talks about spiritual gifts? So why does Paul do that? He talks about their pagan past. He talks about the lordship of Christ before he's going to talk about gifts. Why does he do that? It's because the lordship of Christ is foundational for the entire topic of spiritual gifts. What do we mean when we talk about the Lordship of Christ? We mean that He is Lord. And so His ways go in the world and in our lives. 
So we don't just come to him as Savior. We come to him as Lord, and we submit to him. It seems as though the Corinthians were not submitting to him when it comes to practicing the gifts. Big shocker if you've been with us in the series on the Corinthians. They're a little bit messy. It seems as though they were... uh, puffing themselves up based on their gifts. It seems as though they were judging others who had less impressive gifts. It seems as though their worship services were disorderly and could border on the little bit nutso. Frankly, their worship had some similarities to the excesses of pagan religions that they'd come out of. And so he's correcting them. So let's look at these gifts. Look at 4 through 6 first. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. What do we see here? We see that the triune God is behind all of the spiritual gifts. I wonder if you caught the reference to the Trinity here. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God, God the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. This is why we believe in the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, whom with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Brothers and sisters, we serve one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't let anybody tell you the Trinity is not in the Bible. It is. Now, why does Paul bring out the Trinity here? Because he's starting to beat the drum of unity in diversity. There are different spiritual gifts. There are varieties, it says, of gifts, service, and activities. By the way, those different words, gifts, services, activities, those are just different ways to describe the gifts and their outworkings. There are different spiritual gifts, but the same triune God who empowers them all. So, there's different gifts, but those gifts don't work against each other. Those gifts don't exalt one person and and put down another. Those gifts don't disunify. How do we know? Because the Trinitarian God is behind them all. Think about it. The person of the Trinity The persons of the Trinity have differing roles. The Father planned salvation from all eternity. The Son accomplished salvation by dying on the cross. And the Spirit accomplishes or applies Jesus' work in our hearts. Different roles. But just ask yourself, are the persons of the Trinity 
at odds with one another? Does the Son boast over the Spirit? Does the Father put down the Son? No. (laughs) That's utter silliness. There is unity amidst a diversity of roles, and so it should be with the spiritual gifts in the church. Unity in the church amidst a diversity of gifts. And that makes total sense, given what he says in verse 7. Take a look. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every Christian in the room, listen to me. You have a spiritual gift. To each is given. And it's a gift. To each is given. So this is nothing you earn. This is nothing you have to sign up for. You're like, did I miss that email? This is nothing you you choose from on a menu of options and say, "Mm, I think I'd like that one. This is nothing you can boast in. When you are converted, the Spirit of God gives you a gift. Amen. That's right, Rubes. And you may have more than one, by the way. And for what purpose does he give it? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The purpose of spiritual gifts is explicitly stated as being for the good of the church. He does not give spiritual gifts for the purpose of your own spiritual experience. He does not give spiritual gifts so that you can feel close to God. He gives you a gift so that you can serve and bless the body of Christ. Holy smokes, are we not continuing to see just how much God wants us to be about the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Remember, it was just a couple of chapters ago, chapter 10, at the end of the discussion on when and how to make use of your freedoms in Christ, that Paul says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now he's saying the same thing about spiritual gifts. Your your spiritual gift is actually not about you. It's about the body of Christ. It's about serving and blessing and building up the body of Christ. Okay, so what are the gifts? Paul gives a list of them in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, I'm sure you have like a bajillion questions. And you're either like so excited that I just read that. Or you're like, I have no idea what's about to happen. Um, Let me just, there's no way. I can know what all's going on in your curious minds and answer all of the questions. But I can answer some, and I can let you know where I'm going in future sermons so that hopefully you'll continue to give me your attention right now 
instead of fixating on one question and zoning out from what I'm actually wanting to teach you. So, number one, today is not the only day I'm going to talk about spiritual gifts. I do believe there are some gifts not operating today, and in a couple of weeks, I'm going to devote an entire sermon to that. Which gifts are operating today? Which gifts are not? Why? What is the theological rationale? So today, I'm not going to cover that. I will cover that, though, okay? Two, this list is not an exhaustive list. In other words, the gifts in this list are not the only gifts of the Spirit. There are other gifts listed in other passages in the New Testament. Exhorting, for example. That's a gift according to Romans 12, but it's not listed here. Service, for example, is a gift according to Romans, but it's not listed here. Leading isn't listed here. Neither is administration or giving or mercy or evangelism, all named explicitly in the New Testament as gifts. Those are gifts according to other texts, but they're not here. What's the point? This list in Corinthians isn't exhaustive. It's representative. These are the gifts that were operating in this church at this time that Paul wanted to address. So, What are these gifts? Well, let's just intro them one by one. The utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge. This is essentially, I believe, the gift of teaching. I think this for a few reasons. First, there's no mention of teaching in this list, yet it's so important that it's listed in every other list but this one. So it seems unlikely to me that there'd be no listing of this gift at all in this list if it's in every other list. Two, Paul's long discussion of wisdom in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians is linked with the preaching of the message of the cross. This suggests that an utterance of wisdom is one that actually simply unpacks and teaches the cross. And then three, I'm actually not a huge fan of the translation utterance. The word in the original language, logos, is better just translated as word. That's, in fact, what the NASB has it as if you're reading in that translation. So, word of wisdom and word of knowledge, I think, is a better translation. And if you think word of wisdom, word of knowledge, now just think of parallel sayings of Paul in his other writings. What does Paul teach? He teaches the word of God the word of truth, the word of life, the word of Christ. This all refers to the gospel Paul teaches. And so I think the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge is simply teaching that accords with the gospel. So I think this is teaching. Faith. Faith. This is not saving faith. We know that because saving faith is granted to all believers, and this faith is only granted to some. This must refer to extraordinary faith. Paul speaks of faith that can move mountains in 1 Corinthians 13.2. Perhaps James' prayer of faith that makes the spiritually sick 
well. I think we can look across the course of church history and see some who have clearly had this special gift of faith. I think of George Mueller, how he ran this vast orphanage in England. He never once asked for money because he believed the Lord would provide exactly what was needed when it was needed. And at times he was down to the last dollop of soup and the Lord provided it. I think he had the gift of faith. Extraordinary faith. God will provide. Gifts of healing. Obviously, the apostles had this gift. Peter said to a lame man in Acts 3, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up to walk. And he did. Working of miracles. If this is to be distinguished from the previous one, and I'm not convinced it is, then it refers to, say, exercising of demons, even nature miracles. Prophecy. This is divine revelation revealed and spoken. The ability to discern between spirits. This represents a gift where one is able to discern what is true from what is false. It's especially valuable in detecting false teaching. Tongues. This is the ability to communicate in a language that you do not understand. The interpretation of tongues. This is the ability to interpret the tongues spoken by another. Now, again, I am sure that you have lots of questions. And I will try to answer a good amount of them when I preach in a few weeks a whole message about which one of these are operating, which one aren't, and how we should think about this and understand this. But first, please don't take your eye off the ball. What is Paul driving at here? He's noting how different gifts are given, but the same Spirit gives them Verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. This is driving home the point of unity in diversity, differing gifts, same Spirit. So these should lead to harmony in the church. These should lead to building up the church. These shouldn't lead to you boasting about how seemingly significant you are or how bummed about how seemingly insignificant you are. These gifts actually aren't about you at all. And in fact, the next verse highlights that. Verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You see, the sovereignty of the Spirit, because the Spirit determines which gift to give for you to bless the church. By the way, you see the personality of the Spirit here? Are you ever tempted just accidentally to refer to the Spirit as an it, right? You ever tempted to do that? Like the Spirit is kind of a magical power, a thing, an it, right? 
Don't do that, okay? The Spirit is a he. The Spirit is a person who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit is one of the three persons of the Godhead, and what a precious reality that he dwells in you. And he sovereignly gives gifts to you so that you can bless Christ's church. And if that idea of unity amidst diversity hasn't quite sunk in yet, Paul wants to footstomp it one last time. Would you look at verses 12 and 13? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all made to drink of the one spirit. There are many different members in a church. The church here is imaged as a body. So just think about a body. Body has all sorts of different parts, hands, feet, Eyes, ears, thumbs, pinkies, big toes, kneecaps, nose. There's like a bajillion parts of every single body. And I didn't take anatomy and physiology because I didn't want to do that much memorization. But then I took Greek and I had to do the same thing. So, you know. But every part of the body is interconnected and it's part of one body. So it is in Christ's church. Though we are many and though we are different, each has a different gift given by the Spirit. We are interconnected and we are part of one body. And this is the case by virtue of our common participation in the Spirit. Look at verse 13 again. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. We are one by virtue of the fact that we have been baptized into one body. What baptism is this? It is none other than the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which takes place at conversion. When anyone is converted, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, That soul is made to drink of the Spirit. You receive the Spirit. He comes to dwell in you. You partake of Him. Through Him, you are united to Christ and united to the body of Christ. Now, some of you may have been taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens after conversion. Something that not not all Christians attain. That's not true. Dear Christian, we have all, not some, been made to drink of one Spirit. And so we really are connected to one another. Despite the differing gifts we have, through the Spirit, we are part of one body. And He gifts us as He sovereignly chooses so that we can bless the body. And all of this has to come down to a local church level. 
Keep, keep in mind, Paul is writing to a local church, to believers who are not thinking about their gifts rightly, who are not using their gifts rightly, who are not submitting themselves to the lordship of Christ. And so he's blowing the whistle. Foul. This is how gifts are supposed to operate. And so as we think about us, here are some ways I think this applies to our particular church. First of all, to non-Christians, don't think about spiritual gifts. Think about Jesus Christ as God's gift to you. True spirituality is first confessing Jesus as Lord. If you are outside of Christ, you are currently practicing some form of false spirituality. You may not think yourself spiritual. You may think yourself very spiritual. But however you think of yourself, the truth is you're actually being led astray to and by various false idols, worthless idols, idols that don't speak, idols that don't have life, idols that promise the world and can't deliver. Money can't deliver. Sex can't deliver. Success can't deliver. Mental health can't deliver. Nothing can deliver except Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for sinners like you. And so don't think about spiritual gifts. Think about Jesus and come to him as the ultimate gift and be saved. Come to Christ and be forgiven. Come to Christ and find real life, real usefulness, and a real God who's really worth living and dying for. True spirituality begins with confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. So just ask yourself, do I believe that? If you do, it's a sign that the Spirit of God is working in you, revealing His Son to you. And I'd encourage you to talk to a member of Redeeming Grace more about what's going on. And the beauty of what it looks like to have faith in Jesus Christ and to be forgiven of your sins and given eternal life and placed into the body of Christ for usefulness. And to Christians, a couple of phrases come to my mind for the common good. You are not here, members of Redeeming Grace. You are not here among your brothers and sisters only or even mostly or primarily for yourself. You are here to build up your brothers and sisters. That's what you're here for. This entails several things. Number one, commitment to the church. Are you here, but you you haven't become a member of the church? I'd strongly encourage you to do that and to pursue the membership process the next time we offer the class. Membership is a commitment 
to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You were made to be committed to and to bless your brothers and sisters in Christ. So this entails a commitment to the church. And it also entails, oh, brothers and sisters, for those of us who are already members, it includes and calls us to an others-oriented approach to church. Oh, by God's grace that we would grab a hold of this increasingly and evermore. That we would think, like John F. Kennedy said, think not what your country can do for you, think what you can do for your country. That we would think about that in relation to our brothers and sisters in Christ when we are here, when we interact, when we have one another over into our homes, spend time with one another in home group or otherwise. Are we thinking that we're filling up our relationship bucket Or are we thinking about how we are to serve and love and bless each other? Are we thinking about church in relation to me? Are we thinking about church in relation to I'm here to bless you? For the common good. You have been gifted by the Spirit for the common good. Unity amidst diversity. We are different. Shocker. We have differing gifts, yet we are one body. Our different abilities to spiritually bless one another are not a cause of either pride on one hand or despair on another, but are cause for us to say, how can I uniquely serve and love others? Unity amidst diversity. Sovereignty. Spirit distributes his gifts as he will. And so there's no room for boasting. There's no room for despair. You don't pick your gift so you don't get to boast over it or despair over it. Isn't it wonderful that the Spirit employs you sovereignly in service to the church? Sovereignty. And then usefulness. Isn't it wonderful to be useful? Isn't it wonderful to be useful? Isn't that what you want at at work or at home? You want to be useful. Well, isn't it glorious that you get to be useful at church too? So, how do you go about being useful? If I were to put it in a simple way, how do you go about finding out your gift? Well, let me tell you, first of all, please don't Google it. And take an online survey. Somebody told me this week he thought that was about as useful as taking a survey to find out what Hogwarts household you're part of. I think that's right. Those surveys are not helpful. Here's what you should do. It is super easy. Look for a need and then meet that need. Look for a need And then meet that need. If you're asked to fill a role, fill a role. Don't think, do I like this? Am I passionate about this? Do I feel that I can succeed in this? Think, can I be helpful? Think, is there a need? 
think, do I have opportunity to meet it? Then do it. I'll tell you, giftings become clear in time. And most of the time, they are discovered as you simply do whatever needs to be done in the lives of members around you. And so look for needs and then meet those needs, whatever they may be, as subtle as they may be. Look for needs and then meet those needs. Pray for opportunities to serve your brothers and sisters and to serve the church. And as opportunities arise, take those opportunities. And then church members, when you see brothers and sisters serving in various capacities, encourage them. Note to them that you see them doing good and wonderful things that bless the church. And what begins to happen is you just, you just begin to, to find your way in the context of community into where you're gifted and most able to help serve, love, build up. And it's in a lot of different practical ways. This gets fleshed out pretty simply in the life of the church. Not very mystically in the confines of our private devotions. So continue to look for opportunities to serve your brothers and sisters for their well-being and for the glory of God and the progress of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, we thank you. We just thank you today. It's shocking to think that we are employed in the work of the gospel, in speaking to one another and in serving one another. As we'll see later when I talk about gifts more, these gifts tend to, to, to fall into either speaking gifts or serving gifts. And, and we're all able to speak and to serve into one another's lives for our progress in the faith. And so I'm just so grateful that you don't only choose the awesome, the significant. You give gifts to every single one of us so that we might work for the common good of the flourishing of the church. And so we thank you. And we ask, Lord, that we might be a church where more and more the right practice and exercise of the gifts characterizes us for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning Savior, whom we happily submit to. Amen.